Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 9 of Sustainapod, where we talk about the circular fashion economy and education with Lauren from Redress. In part 1 of this episode, we've covered the basics of the circular fashion economy, as well as Lauren's experience in this field. We also talked about the wider impact and implications of the circular economy across Asia, and what we as consumers can do in the circular economy. In part two, we will be covering the education on circular economy, zooming in specifically into redress and what they as an organization do. This was a super exciting and interesting conversation, so we hope you enjoy listening. I believe we've already kind of touched on this already. So Asia is quite known for its cheap labor and cheap manufacturing. And that's why a lot of fashion brands produce in, um, you know, developing countries such as Bangladesh, Cambodia, and other developing countries. What problems can this cause? And how do you think we can be more educated on these often neglected topics? Yeah, so problems it causes, well, if it's cheap, it's cheap for a reason. And it's often because there's less laws and regulations there. Um, so that's kind of a, a byproduct of, of producing in developing countries. And when there's fewer laws and regulations, it's easy to take advantage of people. Um, and oftentimes, as we've said, there's you know, poor wages and uh, poor working conditions or unsafe working conditions. Um, and sometimes sort of like major human rights violations. Um, and I don't know if either of you have heard about, but like a good example of it is the Rana Plaza accident, which happened in 2013, um, where over a thousand garment factory workers died um, when a building collapsed. And it's just an example of how, you know, poor regulations can, can lead to really unsafe practices. Um, and people who work in those factories don't really have any choice uh, whether to sort of go to work or not, or they don't really have a voice to say, hey, this is unsafe. Um, and yeah, it can have some really serious consequences. I think as well, we just need to remember that it's not just garment factory workers. Um, so we talked a little bit about like the fact that cotton comes from um, a plant. Um, and there are so many people who are involved in the whole supply chain, you know, the people who grow the cotton, those farmers, they're also at risk people. And that's also happening um, often in developing countries like India. So we need to think about people across the whole supply chain and not just the garment factory workers. But yeah, you asked how can we be more educated about that? Um, it's really difficult. And the, the sort of concept we're talking about here is transparency. It's really difficult to be more educated because often we don't really know where our stuff is made. Um, and the Rana Plaza factory collapse I spoke about is a really good example because when that happened, the media was all over it and brands were scrambling to find out, were we producing in that factory? And it really highlighted for, for brands and also for everybody around the world that, you know, people don't actually know where their stuff is made. And if you don't know if you're, if as a brand, if you don't know whether your clothes are being produced in that factory, how can you guarantee in any way that the people making your clothes uh, have safe and healthy working conditions? And the problem is that the fashion supply chain is so complex and there's so many different people involved in it. And often they're subcontracting to other people that it can be quite difficult for brands to actually trace all of the various steps and to find out 
who's doing things and where it's happening. So, you know, coming back to how can we be more educated? Well, it's really hard because if brands themselves don't even know where their stuff's being made, how on earth are we as consumers meant to make the right decisions? Um, and I think the best we can do is to support brands that are transparent. And there's some transparency indexes like Fashion Revolution has one. Don't know if you've heard of that organization before. There are um, they're a global organization that really focuses on transparency as their main uh, mission. So you can look up Fashion Revolution Transparency Index. And these are organizations that try to sort of um, grade brands on how transparent they are. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those organizations have the best uh, workers' rights. It just means that they are doing work to find out actually where their stuff's being made and what conditions it's being made under. And they're being open and honest about it. And that's really the first step is to find out where is to be open. And then you can take steps to make sure that, you know, that everybody's safe and that they're being paid a living wage. But definitely finding out who's making your clothes is the first step. I think a lot of businesses, like like you said, I didn't know that a lot of businesses didn't know that they, they didn't know where their clothes are being made. And maybe that's also part of the reason why it's hard for them to adapt to like a more sustainable practice because they don't know that they're being that unsustainable. And it's interesting because that's how big the whole process is. Like the people that are leading it don't know how it's operating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a it's a really good observation. It it is. It's very difficult to make progress towards sustainability because you don't always know how sustainable you are, and and a humongous amount of work goes into just finding out what your impact is, and that's before you've even taken steps to minimize that impact. And that's across all things, like how much water are we using in the supply chain? How much waste are we creating? Like, can you imagine if you're a really big brand trying to track that across, or sometimes it's like a conglomerate of brands, you know, trying to track that across all the different brands under your portfolio and then all the different products. Um, I have some friends who work in, in traceability and it's really, really interesting. I mean, they'll, they'll take a product and then they'll literally go across everything in the product. Like, where is the tip on the shoelace made? And like, where is the glue source from? And like, all of these tiny little components of our clothes that you never really think about, like actually they all come from different parts of the world and they're all made from different things. It's a really big job. Um, lots of work to be done. Lots of data too. That's quite an interesting thing to think about. Mm -hmm. I sort of interviewed somebody last week who was looking at data in fashion. You know, once you've collected all of this information, where do you store all of that? And like, how do you organize it? just so much information. Looking onto the bright side a little bit, um, what are some examples of, you know, businesses actually following this circular economy model in Asia? Because I don't think we hear quite a lot about that. So I was quite interested as to like, you know, are there any businesses that follow this? Yeah, definitely. We've got some really great ones in Hong Kong that I'm very happy to tell you about. Um, I hope I don't forget any of them, but on the secondhand side, we've got a bunch of cool businesses that um, either you know sell secondhand or buy consignment, like Retycle, um, which sells designer children's wear, or the Hula, um, which sells designer women's wear. 
both on consignment. So that means that they sell on behalf of, of other people, but it's all secondhand. Um, they both have online stores and physical shops in Hong Kong. Uh, we've got Vestia Collective, who are also consignment, but they're all online and they operate in Hong Kong, as I believe does Depop, although I've never shopped on Depop before. Um, and then we have a bunch of physical secondhand stores that are super cool, like Green Ladies. Um, we've got Salvation Army. Redress has our own pop-up shops. So twice a year, we sell like the coolest, trendiest stuff that we collect in, in secondhand pop-up shops. There's Me and G, um, which has a bunch of, of shops across Hong Kong, both on um, Kowloon side and on Hong Kong Island. Um, Impact Hong Kong, which is a very well-known um, charity in Hong Kong that helps homeless people, has just opened up their own secondhand shop called One of a Kind in Jordan, uh, which is very cool. And then there's a bunch of like more sort of vintage like specialist secondhand shops as well, especially in Kowloon. Um, that are definitely worth exploring, like really cool, trendy ones. So they're all um, examples of secondhand. People often say, you know, there's nowhere to shop secondhand in Hong Kong, but it's totally not true. Um, it's true that we have less option than in other parts of the world, but there are so many, um, there are so many secondhand shops to choose from here as well. I've heard of um, apps and like websites like Depop. Um, I think Hong Kong has a local one called Carousel. Oh yes, Carousel. Yeah, 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 yeah Carousel. Yeah. Um, however, I don't, I don't know if it's, if, it, if I'm wrong about this, but I think there, there's a certain stigma, a social stigma attached to buying from these websites, particularly if you buy, you know, like clothing, um, things like that, and like buying from those websites or like from the Salvation Army, which is quite stupid if you think about it, because it's like. There shouldn't be a stigma attached to it and you know you're actually helping the you know the environment and yeah yeah um definitely and i mean it comes back to what we spoke about just at the very beginning is that it's not the normal way that we're used to doing things like nowadays we're used to wearing new clothes and so to wear clothes that someone else has worn feels weird um and it takes people a while to get used to it but once you are used to it you have like no qualms about it, you know, like I have zero qualms about wearing um, something secondhand. Um, I wash it just like I would wash something if I bought at a, at a shop um, where loads of people have touched it and tried it on. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's way better for your wallet and there's so much more choice in terms of styles. Like that's what really got me into secondhand shopping in the first place was it was affordable and also was like, much easier to find something unique yeah and a lot of the times people think that secondhand clothing is like um less there's less quality or it's like unhygienic and even like I used to think that but then I think it was like last summer I started going um shopping with my friends like thrift stores around Hong Kong like we searched some up and then actually going to those stores it was really fun because everything is different like every piece of clothing so unlike actual shops um, they have like because the clothes there are from people so it's not like they have a lot of the same designs in different sizes so it's really fun to walk around because every piece is unique and yeah, yeah I really enjoyed it yeah like a treasure hunt and yeah. when you find something that like you actually like and it fits yeah you, then you're like whoa yeah this is the piece it's not as yeah. easy as shopping it's definitely not as easy as shopping in a retail store mm -hmm. um, because you know 
a lot of it won't be your size or yeah or sometimes you really have to hunt to find to find styles that you like or to find styles that you like and sizes that fit you and I think you know talking about carousel like there's definitely a spectrum of of, of avenues where you can shop secondhand and some of them are a lot more some of them are a lot more pleasant than others. <laughs> so for example, Retycle and the Hula, they're both luxury wear and their stores are presented in really beautiful ways and their websites are really easy to navigate and this, they have a very high standard for what they will accept. So it's all very clean and good quality. Whereas, you know, other shops like me and G, it's a little bit of a deep dive, you know, it's a bit of like a real bargain hunt, like you really have to sift through and, you know, some of the stuff is great and some of the stuff is really not great. Or like at the Salvation Army, there might be some treasures in there, but a lot of it could be like, you're not good quality stuff. Um, so you really, it, it depends where you shop secondhand on what your experience is. And maybe carousel where you're buying directly from the seller feels a little bit more personal than if you buy from, for example, the hula where it's just all already in the shop. You know, you don't have that like personal connection with the person who donated it. Well, sorry, not donated at the hula because they're selling it. Um, so I think it's maybe a bit easier to shop secondhand somewhere like that. I feel like this ties in quite nicely into our last story, which is education on the circular economy. So for our, uh, for our audience that don't know, what does Redress do in order to educate students about circular fashion? So this year we launched a very exciting online platform. Um, the web address for any listeners is www.redress.com.hk forward slash ECF. Um, and this online platform is a really meaty toolkit where any students can go to learn more about the major issues in the fashion industry like overproduction. So we've got three modules, overproduction and overconsumption. The second one is pollution and waste. And the third one is the circular economy and like innovations and solutions. Um, and we've built it to be like a knowledge base. So we did a lot of research to write uh, content under each of those modules to teach you like all the background information. But then we also link it to loads of news articles, um, videos, uh, photos, what else we got like industry reports and infographics um, that come from third party sources so that you can, you know, fi find out a lot more if you're interested. So for students, it's really directed towards like self-directed learning. Um, but it was also created for teachers and there's a bunch of teaching resources in there like class activity ideas um, and curriculum links that are all about empowering teachers to teach this stuff in the classroom um, and across a number of subjects. So we link it to like maths and science, um, social studies, uh, because actually like you'll know from the conversations we've been having today that it really links to all of the subjects across the curriculum, like science, we're looking at material innovation, social studies, looking at worker rights. It's not just about fashion design. We really don't see it as being a subject that's only about design and technology. So that's the one thing is we created this platform. Um, and the other part is that we go into schools um, and, and do talks and run workshops. Um, and we also work with students on like one-on-one -on -one basis if they're doing a project or they, they'd like to interview us to find out more or they'd like support with their project. We're very open um, to engaging with students at, at any time. 
I think the the new project that you launched, it's really cool because the students or like the teachers, they don't need to wait for you guys to like come and present. They can just go onto the website and find it and educate themselves. And Redress, I think is like all about educating. Educating really is one of the most effective ways to inspire people. So yeah, I think that was a really cool idea. Yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and I love how and I love how you link it into you know things that students actually study themselves like yeah. you know maths and things like that because I feel like one of the things about you know sustainable fashion or environmentalism is that it feels quite foreign to students and it just kind of feels like okay it's a separate topic however it's actually not it can link into so many different aspects and yeah that's <laughs> it's really good yeah um, very good point, both from you, Marco, about, you know, the importance of education and um, Celine, you know, it, we really want to normalize sustainability. It's not like sustainability should be taught as a separate subject. It, it should really just be like a core part of, of everything that we do. Um, and we definitely want to get away from this idea that like, it's only like the green team or like the hippies that are into sustainability. <laughs> It should really just be something that all people um, feel is is important and a, and a normal part of, of how we do things. But yeah, definitely, Marco, um, education underpins all of our all of our work. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of yeah, it's one of the main things that we do. So um, I was wondering why why have you specifically chosen your like students to be your target audience? because like you go into schools to present to students and you work with them on projects? So it's definitely not our only target audience. Um, and actually <laughs> I was sort of regretting not saying just a second ago, the last question that like when I say education underpins everything we do, it underpins our work with um, corporates as well and with consumers and with designers. Um, so those are really our, our core groups that we work with. It's students and educators. We can kind of group them together, students and educators. Um, it's designers, uh, it's corporates, and then it's consumers. Um, and with all of those groups, we're basically trying to educate them, whether it's about educating them about sustainable design strategies um, or for corporates and consumers, it's about educating them about like behavioral change. Um, but for students who are really like one of our key audiences, it's really because you guys are like the next generation of consumers. I think it's, they say, I think Gen Z is like 40% of consumer spending power already. So these are the people that brands are going to be looking to like satisfy um, in the future. And so if we can educate Gen Z, we're educating a really big percentage of, mm -hmm. of like consumers of tomorrow. What do you think, like, you know, are the greatest challenges in educating students about this? Because I think we've talked about, you know, how some students think it's quite foreign to them. And, you know, it's just for a certain type of people, like, for example, hippies. Um, other than that, <laughs> what, like, what, other, what other challenges are there in educating students? I think, um, I, like, two biggest ones come to mind. The first would be that um, there's a lot of mixed messaging because advertising is everywhere. So on the one hand, you're getting told to like be more sustainable, but on the other hand, you're being told that like you're supposed to look a certain way or that this is in trend and this is not in trend. And so it's difficult, I think, for young people to like know what the right decisions to make are. And then I think another one is that young people, especially in Hong Kong, are just, there's so much going on. Um, 
in their lives you know studying is is such a big and an important part of life and like so many things to think about with like yeah exams and future and careers and things like this that I think sometimes it's a bit overwhelming to then like also put on this burden of like oh yeah and you also need to like make sure that you're recycling all of your plastics and that you're shopping at the bulk store and that you're like you know it's just an endless list of things that we should all be doing better to be more sustainable and I, I think it can just be a little bit overwhelming sometimes you guys are the young people so you can yeah that's true or not <laughs> so from educating not only students but like um teachers staff and corporates um what do you think you have learned about learned from that experience so about teaching people about circular fashion sustainability I think for me, the biggest learning has come from actually all of the research that I had to do, um, you know, in order to create that platform and then in order to sort of create the talks that I deliver now. Um, definitely all of those statistics about resource consumption just blew my mind um, and thinking a lot more about, as I said, not just fashion, but all of our stuff and the fact that like we only have one planet, but we're using so much stuff we're using almost two um so yeah I mean that's what I've that's really uh, sort of what I've learned the most um in this process I think what I something I found really interesting is that I wrote I wrote my talks and this platform for students first and we say that it's a platform that's aimed at like around age sort of nine to 14 but when I deliver talks at like law firms or big banks I deliver almost exactly the same content as I would talk to a nine-year-old about. <laughs> and it's, I think that's been really interesting because I think at the end of the day, it's taught me that like you have to bring things really back to the basics. You can't just yeah. sort of like race ahead because it's such a complicated subject. You've really got to bring it back. And for us, that's bringing it back again to resources and to like the reasons why it's important not to waste like oh yeah 196 tons of clothes goes to landfill every day like boohoo like what does that mean and then when you talk about like actually like what went into making that stuff that's when it sort of like dawns on people that it's a problem yeah and I don't I think it's never too late to educate people because it doesn't matter if they're like the next generation or how old they are it's never too late because once they hear about all the facts and like the statistics and all the impacts they're having on the planet like it doesn't matter who it is it always like shocks them so yeah with every person you talk to it doesn't matter who it can really influence them to make a change yeah absolutely I mean I even look at people like my mom who would never have shopped secondhand you know like she's <laughs> one of these people who really thinks there's a lot of stigma around that mm -hmm. um, but now if I buy her something secondhand from our pop-up shop like she'll wear it with pride and Aww. so it's cool to like <laughs> see those changes in in other people and in another generation mm -hmm. but definitely I mean something that I've enjoyed about teaching kids especially the younger ones is that they're so enthusiastic about these issues and they are just so clued up on like yeah. reusing and love to tell you stories about how their socks were repaired or how they got something <laughs> from their cousin or like they're just all about reuse so then you wonder like what happens when they when you when kids grow up like what, what point do we stop thinking it's cool to like share and repair <laughs> stuff when 
onto that, um, when you give presentations to, you know, some of the older students, if you will, about the need for a change in the current fashion industry and give them like these really shocking statistics on how much water goes into our t-shirts, our jeans, often, oftentimes they basically, uh, they're very motivated to take out action after hearing the talk, but after give it a day or two, um, they go back to living um, their current unsustainable lifestyles. So what can be done to prevent something like that happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we need to make it more normal. I think we need to make like wearing our stuff for longer or shopping secondhand or swapping way more normal. Um, and one of the ways we could do that is by encouraging young people to um, talk more openly and like be more confident about stuff they've bought secondhand. So like share it on social media, um, just like in the same way as influencers can make it really cool to have the new thing. Like, could we have influencers who are like sustainable fashion influencers who um, make it cool to wear secondhand? Um, and the other thing we can do is just make it a lot more accessible. So yeah, I did just say that there's loads of places you can shop secondhand in Hong Kong, but maybe that's not accessible enough. You know, maybe we need to make it as accessible as, you know, going to your local mall and there being a secondhand option, you know, everywhere you go. Make it easier, I think, for all sustainable actions. Just make it easy for people to do them. I think normalizing is a really, really key point because if I'm thinking like optimistically, I think that in a few years, it will become normal to normal and like more cool and trendy to shop from secondhand stores and like live more sustainably. Because even now, um, even though we do have like a long way to go, um, people are starting to shop from like thrift stores and they're buying more secondhand. And on like Instagram, there's a lot of shops um, that sell secondhand clothing. And that's becoming like what's cool to do mm. so the more people that continue to do that the more normal it will become mm. yeah definitely I guess it's a bit of one of those like chicken and egg situations right because <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, who's gonna take the first step yeah so can you talk about a little bit about how far redress has come since it started you know 10 years ago and how how you think redress could move forward in the next 10 years in terms of circular fashion and fashion yeah that's a big question um in terms <laughs> Sorry of to put you on the spot like that I know it's quite a... yeah <laughs> I don't even have a you know 10 month plan for my own life <laughs> but this is redress the 10-year plan um in the last 10 years I can definitely say we have um we have come a very long way and especially this circular fashion program is only now when did it start maybe beginning of 2019 so it's only two years old um prior to that redress really focused on designers through our redress design award and it was only in the last two years that we got funding um to start talking to consumers and to hold these events and to create this education platform so in two years we've achieved an enormous amount with that program and I, we've really raised the profile of redress um and we're seeing a huge increase in the number of people especially in the last year contacting us saying that they want to get involved whether they're corporates or, or you know members of the public or schools we really have seen a spike in interest when I first joined redress about 
um, two and a half years ago. It was middle of 2018. We used to joke in our team that like plastics got all the attention and we used to say, oh, we wish that sustainable fashion could be sexy, like plastics, you know, <laughs> sustainable plastics, so sexy. Um, and then it just exploded. You know, in the last two years, it's like all over the media. There's so much being written about it. There's so many more um, sort of secondhand and rental options popping up. So definitely um, awareness has risen humongously in the last 10 years. That said, waste is still rising. So our behavior is really changing. Um, it's really hard for us to know. I think it's, it's a very big challenge is actually tracking awareness and tracking behavioral change and if we look at then the next 10 years that's something that we will be focusing a lot on in our program anyway is like how do we measure whether people are taking action could we be doing like consumer surveys so we did one this year so we did a consumer survey which is all about you know finding out how often people throw things in the bin and how willing they are to buy secondhand and that kind of thing so can we use that as a benchmark and then do it again next year and the next year and, and use that as a way to like track whether behavioral and um, whether changes are actually happening in behavior. That's definitely one thing that we'll be doing. Um, something else on a personal level that I would love to be doing is um, creating more options for people to shop secondhand or to rent or to have their stuff repaired. So whether that's something that we do ourselves at Redress, um, which would be a really big task. <laughs> so we're quite a small organization or whether it's that we start working more and more with brands to like help them implement those programs in their stores or for their consumers. That's something that I'd really like to see. Yeah, I think Redress is such like a well-known organization now, like almost everyone knows, knows about it. And that's really great because the work that you guys do is like, amazing so the more people that know about it the more they can educate themselves and like the more years that pass the even more people will know about it so yeah I think because I really like what redress does and it's really important and it's also really appealing for this generation because a lot of people are interested in like fashion and also sustainability so it perfectly like encapsulates that yeah Oh, thank you for saying that. I mean, it means a lot because, you know, we work really, really hard. Um, so, yeah, it, it makes me makes my heart very happy to know that um, that people know about us and that yeah. people respect the work that we do and find it interesting. And I just hope that, um, you know, people will also kind of take in the message and, and change their behaviors because that's the that's the whole point right and I'd yeah. love to hear from you guys whether it's like on this podcast now we probably don't have time or, or afterwards or if you ask your friends I just I'd love to know from young people like what would you like to see from redress in the next 10 years you know mm -hmm. knowing what you do about us like how could we help young people to be more sustainable I think that's a wonderful time to wrap up because you know it's a very nice place to end. Um, thank you so much for your time, Lauren. We've learned so much today and hopefully our conversation has inspired everyone in our audience to adapt towards a circular lifestyle and support the circular economy. So make sure to check out the wonderful work that Lauren and Redress do on their website or on Instagram and support them through their various campaigns and initiatives they hold.
And as always, thank you to our SustainaPod listeners for tuning in for this episode. And we welcome any questions or comments you have based on our conversation with Lauren or feedback for the podcast in general. And like, like we were just talking about, um, if you have any ideas for what you want Redress to do in the next few years, then feel free to comment it below. And you can email us on sustainapod at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at Green Impact Hub. So that's all. Stay tuned for the next episode and see you next time.